uh, please be turning in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4, if you're not there already. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to get myself set up here. All right. So, watch this. Bam. Oh, it's not working. Hey, can you click click on the window? Click on uh, Easy Worship. And if you click on there, there we go. Hey, it worked. I can stop saying next slide and I can start just hitting it. And if I mess up, it's on me. So in Hebrews chapter 4, um, since we were off of Hebrews for a week, I'm going to give you just a quick recap. The main theme of Hebrews in chapter 1 through 6 is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is better than all of the things that these Jewish Christians could look back to. Now, I've said this many times, that many of us don't struggle with wanting to go back to Judaism. I don't know about you guys. I did not grow up going to the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificing a lamb. I just didn't. I didn't grow up, um, you know, celebrating Hanukkah. I didn't grow up uh, making the incense. I didn't do any of those things. So we have to kind of translate this a little bit for us because since we're Gentiles, I don't know how many of you in here might have some Jewish ancestry, but most of us are Gentiles. And so we come at, we become believers, and we don't come out of a religious system like the Jews did, but we come out of more of probably a, a non-religious or a religious, non-religious system. You know, if you ever talk to anybody, that sounds like circle talk, but if you ever talk to anybody that says, well, I'm not religious, I guarantee that they are. Because even the most pagan person that, that rejects that there is even a God has their own system, their way of morals, their own foundation for what they think is right and wrong. And if you ever get in an argument with an atheist and they say, well, that's just wrong, the first question you have to ask them is, based on what? You say there's no God, and therefore there's no morals. And so what are you basing your system of right and wrong on? But that's a whole other uh, conversation. So the theme of Hebrews is that if you're looking back to what life was like before being a Christian, Jesus is greater than all those things. So he's picking apart the ways that God had laid up for them to follow him in the past. And they had ways that, that we read about in the Old Testament. He's greater than the prophets. Now, who are the prophets? The prophets are the people that God spoke to, and he used them as the mouthpiece. Any of you guys ever play a, a musical instrument, like a, like a saxophone or you know, a flute? Or a, I played the tuba because I was that cool. And I was thinking about that homecoming this, this weekend for Farmington. I carried a 40-pound tuba around for four years. Now, I was already going to be short, uh, but carrying 40-pound tuba around did not help things for four years. But on each of those instruments, there's a piece where you put your mouth to it to make the sound. Um, it's different, and it's formed different, and you use it different, but that mouthpiece, without it, you can't translate what you can do with your mouth into the instrument, which then projects it. Well, God speaks in a still, small voice by his Spirit, and he speaks to these prophets, and these prophets are essentially the megaphone through which God speaks. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Moses, you know, John the Baptist was the New Testament last prophet of God, the way that God spoke in the past. And so in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by prophets, those were his mouthpiece, 
has in these last days spoken to us by Jesus, his son. And so even though those prophets were great and they were mighty men, and, and even some of them, like Jeremiah, I was reading Jeremiah this morning, he gave a message that was every time, no doubt, absolutely what God said, and the people that he spoke to said, no, we don't believe a word you're saying. You're trying to dupe us. You're trying to mess with us. You're trying to get us conquered. At the time that they were taken away to captivity, uh, there was a remnant of, uh, of the nation of Judah, or the tribe of Judah, left in Israel. And they were there, and God kept them, and he caused them a remnant, and they said, pray to God for us, Jeremiah, that perhaps he would give us instructions on what to do next, because we want to follow his will. And so they asked Jeremiah to pray for him, them, and Within 10 days, God gives a word to Jeremiah for those people. He says, hey, here's the deal. Stay in the land, even though Nebuchadnezzar has conquered the land, and you're essentially here under his reign now. Stay in the land, and it will go well for you. But if not, if you go into Egypt, you will be captured, and things will not go well for you. Essentially, God won't protect you there, but he will protect you here. Which to them, they're going, why would we stay in enemy territory? But in reality, they were, if they disobeyed, they were going to go into enemy territory. So it doesn't matter. Just do what God says, right? Seems simple. But they looked around and they were like, Jeremiah has, he's gotten together with somebody that he, he knows that we're going to be, there's conspiracy going on. Let's not listen. They had even said when they approached Jeremiah, whatever you tell us to do, we will obey. Absolutely, without a doubt. Even if we don't like it, they said that. And then, guess what happened? God told them something that they didn't want to hear, and they said, we will not do that. And we're going to find out it didn't go well for them. But Jeremiah, every time, he had absolutely no one ever heed what he said from the Lord. His whole life. So what does a successful ministry look like? Well, it looks like being obedient and saying what God says to say. So then, these prophets were mighty. They weren't, it didn't always go well for them, but they obeyed God they spoke on behalf of God. But Jesus is greater because he has in these last days given us God's final word. He's given us the way of salvation that all the Old Testament prophets pointed to. And then in chapter 1, verse 4 through 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, he actually talks about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And we talked about that at length, how the angels many times were the heavenly messengers that God would send a vision and he would speak to his people through angels. I don't know about you, but if I'm used to angels, and then some guy comes that doesn't look, you know, Jesus in Isaiah, does, it says that he didn't even have any form or comeliness that anybody would desire him. He didn't look like a model. He didn't look like somebody you'd want to follow. He was just like every other man. And, and so if you're used to angels, and then God says, listen to my son, and your son doesn't look like what you think a leader would look like, um, that's going to be a little confusing. So you're going to always long to, hey, you know, angels were a little better than this. And so he says, these heavenly messengers were great, but Jesus is better because angels are created beings. Prophets are created beings. Jesus was not created. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so he is not created. He was there before creation. He's better than angels. So then... He gets to the next way that God spoke to his people, and that was through Moses. Now, if you've ever watched Charlton Heston, 
in the Ten Commandments, you see that Moses is this fiery, he's got a long beard, so he's got to be wise. He's got Charlton Heston's voice, so who wouldn't want to listen to him? He's the modern-day equivalent of James Earl Jones, right? If, you, if you've ever heard the Bible read by James Earl Jones, you're like, man, that's, that God's got to sound like that. Um, and so they were used to listening to Moses, and Moses gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This was their whole Bible. He wrote it all at, at the leading of the Holy Spirit. So if you're used to Moses being the final authority, essentially, um, then it's very difficult for you to, to hear somebody say that, well, Jesus is better than Moses. Well, that's impossible. Moses is the best. He's the best Bible teacher there was. And so uh, what we find is that in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, 13, that he spends almost a chapter and a half speaking on the fact that Jesus is greater than even Moses. And so he is going to be this communicator that surpasses what Moses was. So how is Jesus greater than Moses? Well, in first and foremost, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we talked about two weeks ago, he was faithful to God who appointed him. God chose Jesus. We even see it as baptism that God speaks in an audible voice and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that was before Jesus had done anything that we would consider ministry. He's just his son, and he was faithful. He never broke one command. Now, if you know anything about the life of Moses, Moses killed a man. At the very beginning, he was adopted by Pharaoh. He was taken out of the River Nile. His mother had placed him there by faith. He was given to essentially somebody that, uh, uh, was it the daughter of Pharaoh? And then he was nursed by his own mom. And, and as he was nursed, you could just imagine that his, his mom, the whole time nursing him, is just saying, hey, just remember, you're not Egyptian, you're Hebrew. You know? And God's got a plan for you because he saved your life, and now I get to take care of you. How amazing is that? And so as she's praying over the son that she's nursing, that she knows is, his, is hers, then she gives this son up to be raised up in the ways of Pharaoh. He goes to university, if you will. He's there for a time, and he's learning all the ways of the world. Egypt had a college of knowledge that was surpassing in all other nations. And, and after that, he knows that he's Hebrew somehow. I don't know if she literally was telling him till he got to be however old he was when he left Egypt, but at that point, he starts speaking, and he starts noticing that what's going on is that the Egyptians are beating up his brethren. And so knowing somehow intrinsically that he's called to be a deliverer for Israel, he has this righteous indignation within him. That's not right. They're beating my brothers. And so he goes out there. But what you find is that Moses has a little bit of an anger problem. So instead of doing it God's way, he goes out there. He tries to mediate between them and says, hey, this isn't right that you're beating this man. And it gets into a tussle, and before it's all said and done, Moses murders the Egyptian. And he thinks that his brothers would be like, woohoo! And they're like, what are you, you're a murderer. And the next day, there's another argument going on, and it's two Hebrews arguing. And he goes in between them, and he goes, hey, you guys, this isn't right. You guys are brothers. And they go, what are you going to do, murder one of us too? 
And at that point, he's like, oh, no, they know that I murdered somebody. And Pharaoh catches on and hears that he murdered one of Pharaoh's servants. And so Moses flees to the desert for 40 years. He, and, and so my point is, is that Pharaoh, Moses was great, but he was a murderer. He was not perfect. God uses imperfect people. And so what we find in verse 3 through 6 is that... Um, of chapter 3, he says this, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. So, what we find out is that Moses was great, but he was a part of the house of God that God was building. Now, the house of God, many times the Jewish people would think of the house of God as the temple. And many times we, in the same way, think of the house of God as a building or a location. And I fall into that crack all the time, and I start thinking about, you know, even Wednesday as we were leading worship at Parkland Chapel, God was flooding my mind with ways that God has changed the course of my life through a simple location and a group of people that loved on me and invested in me. But God is not that building. Uh, He is the building that he is assembling, and his building is made up of people, living stones with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And so with that being the case, what we realize from this passage is that Moses is part of the house of God, and that we are also a part of the house of God that Moses is a part of. How amazing is that? That Noah, who walked by faith, and Moses, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, all these individuals are made up of the same house of God that you and I get to be a part of. They're just blocks like we are. Do you ever look at a building and go, wow, look at the block right there. That's the perfect block. Now, some of you that are like OCD and you notice those things, you might notice that. But what we give honor to when we look at a building, hopefully, is, man, the guy that designed that is a pretty amazing designer. He's an architect. He even thought through how he was going to do, you know, I always look at steeples on the top of a building. How do they attach them? The wind blows and they don't fall over. And, And so my mind goes, man, somebody really thought through that process. It's still there after however many years. And so he says there that Jesus is not a part of the building. He's the builder of the building. And yet, somehow in the juxtaposition, he's also made himself a part of the building, being completely human and completely God. And so he's greater than Moses, simply. So we are also a part of this house, like Moses, but the condition is if we remain confident in Christ. Sometimes we remain confident in our own ability to remain, and what we need to be confident in is in Christ, which is why he writes verse 7 through 19 of chapter 3, which I'm going to use my New Living Translation to read because it's a little bit smoother in its its, um, reading. But what it says is, that is why us being part of the, the, the house of God and we have to remain confident in Christ, that is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, Don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. 
There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath, and I said, they will never enter my place of rest. So he says in verse 12, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. He says, and who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? It's not that they rebelled against God because he didn't say anything to them. They were those that had heard his audible voice. Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses now lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. And so he's speaking about this nation that was miraculously delivered from the hand and the bondage and the slavery of Pharaoh. The plagues and Passover, they, they killed the lamb, they put the blood over the doorposts and the lentils. And in every house in Egypt, there was a firstborn son that died. And yet, because they trusted in the blood of the lamb, their firstborn sons were spared because they trusted in the blood. So they saw that happen. And then they saw God miraculously not only bring them out of Egypt, but they took gold and silver. They pillaged a nation they were enslaved to. They didn't take it by force. They didn't go in there with swords and say, give us all your money. They, they just literally asked for it and they gave it to them. Just get out here, take my stuff. And when they left and they went into the wilderness, God took them across the desert to the Red Sea. Then God, by the hand of Moses, parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry land, getting to the other side. And then the Egyptians, not passing through by faith, pursuing the people of God, God judged them and killed them all by letting the sea fall on them. And they saw that, okay? I don't think we get the, the volume of that. They saw that take place literally. And then they got into the wilderness and God said, I'm going to give you this land that I promised to Abraham. I'm going to take you across the Jordan. And they said, well, that's great. We're excited about that. And they sent in 12 spies to go spy out the land because they wanted to walk by sight and not by faith. God said he's going to do it, and yet they wanted to check out the condition. Let's see if we can take it. You can't take it. That's why I said I'm going to give it to you, God says. And so they... 10 spies came out and said, hey, there's giants. They're like really tall. Some of them got 12 fingers. Some of their beds are 13 feet long. I don't know if we can do it. There's too many nations. They all lived in 
fortified cities. They've got armies. And so they doubted God's word because of what they saw. And so God's warning to us from them is that we need to be careful. They never entered into the rest into the rest of God simply because they didn't believe God. They didn't get to enter the land. That generation, 20 and above, they literally wandered in the desert for 40 years until they all died. When you complain against God, when you don't listen to what he says and believe it, when the Israelites became complainers, their occupation became burying their dead. Sin and disobedience and unbelief always leads to death. And so, what is rest? What's this rest he's talking about? Well, in chapter 3, he talks about the fact that God never let, he said, you will never enter my rest. Now, what do you guys think about? What's the, what comes into your mind when you think about the word rest? Is it, is it Sunday afternoon naps? I'm a big fan, by the way. Love Sunday, Sunday afternoon naps. Um, is it vacation? We just got done with summer. <laughs> Dana says no. Sometimes vacation can be more work than regular everyday life, right? You got to plan so somebody else can take on your responsibilities while you're gone. And then you got to make sure you plan for the vacation itself. And then you get back and, you're, and none of your chores are done. You got to do all your chores that weren't done while you were gone. The grass is three feet tall and, you know, all the stuff that goes along with that. So what does God mean by rest? I mean, we have our ideas of rest, and some of them are actually real. Some of them are actually right. But what does the Bible say about rest? Well, for the, for the Israelites, rest that he was speaking about to them was a victorious life in the land of Canaan, in the land that he promised. It was not a picture of life in heaven because there were still battles. They still had cities to take over. They still had people that God was using them to judge. And so if that's the reality and he wanted to give them the land, rest actually looked like a lot of work. They're going to go into this land. They don't have any houses. They don't have any buildings. But rest was that, uh, trusting God to bring them into the land. So he warns them and he says, beware that you don't find yourself delivered out of Egypt, saved, and yet never entering into abundant life. Abundant life doesn't happen at salvation. Abundant life is every day after salvation until we see Jesus face to face. Do you know that? God has promised us abundant life. He's promised us rest while we're still alive. Many of us don't believe that because we've never experienced it. And I would submit to you that it's because you haven't trusted what God has said is true. So what is the rest that he's talking about? Well, in this passage, he talks about several types of rest. But before we go into that, I'm going to read to you what chapter 4, verse 1 through 13 says. He says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering God's rest, let us be afraid lest any of you seem to have come short of it. How many of you have fear? Me too. Do you ever fear missing out on God's complete best for you? He says, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of the rest that God promised. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to the Israelites. But the word which they heard did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they heard the word of God, but because they didn't 
mixed that hearing with faith, they missed out. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works which were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, God has written to them, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6 says, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, and he quotes to Psalm 95, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Notice in verse 10, it says, he who has entered his is capitalized. So it's not the rest that we have in mind, but it's actually God's planned rest. How many times do we miss out on God's rest because we have an idea of what rest looks like. We have an expectation for what rest looks like, and therefore we miss out on the rest that God's already provided. And so he says, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Now, I've always found this verse hilarious, because how many times have we, <laughs> how many times do you think I need to rest, and I need to be, make sure I work really hard at getting rest? right? Let's work hard so we can rest. That makes no sense to me. It seems the opposite, that we should just rest to rest. But he says, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So he talks about rest for the whole passage, and he ends on speaking and giving us the characteristics and the attributes and the abilities of the word of God. So it's all about entering into rest by hearing and believing God's word. So he talks about Sabbath rest, and that word Sabbath is what we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, after finishing creation, God actually rested on the seventh day. He created for six days, six 24-hour cycles. The word in the, the Old Testament in Genesis is the word yom, and that means a 24-hour cycle. And so it, at the end of that week, he took a day off. Now, I would ask you, do you think that God took a day off because he was tired? No, it actually says in the Psalms that God never sleeps nor slumbers. So rest is not necessarily that he went to bed. Rest was that he ceased from his labor. And so as we see him ceasing from his labor, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 4 says, 
He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And so God is showing us about rest and showing us an example. And I would submit to you that we should take a Sabbath rest. It's not required of us to Sabbath rest to be saved, but I think that it's good wisdom. If God rested, and if Jesus took a day of rest, I think that we also should probably follow that example. Uh, if, if the manufacturer of your car says, you need to change your oil at a certain interval, of course, they're lengthening that as they make more improved oils, but they say, after this said amount of miles, you should change your oil to take care of your car. How many of us do it? I do. I'm kind of religious about it. Not all of us do it. I get that. Some, some guys, have, you know, the guy... On the, on the other side of the hill, living in some ravine somewhere, said, you know what? I haven't changed the oil in 10 years. I'm afraid if I do, it'll actually create more problems. And I get that. I don't change the oil in my lawnmower. It's probably unwise. But the point is, we follow manufacturer's recipe for vehicles, right? Why don't we do that for our manufacturer? He has said, in seven days, you shall take a rest. Now, for all of us, that might look differently. The, the disciples watched Jesus, they took records, and they watched Jesus walk through this life for three years and serve unrelentingly. And it says that on the Sabbath day, he healed people. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees got all upset with him because they said, you can't work on the seventh day. Their Sabbath day was on Saturday because their day started in the morning. My point is, is that Sabbath rest doesn't always look what we think like it looks doesn't mean not helping those who are in need. Many times people take a day of rest to stop doing what they want to do or what they have to do so they can do what God wants them to do. And so it has to do with whatever God's doing in your life. But my point is, he talks about Sabbath. Israel's rest, spoken of in the same passage, talks about entering into the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9, he speaks of this. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9, says this. There it is. In verse 8, he says, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not yet come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan... And you dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be a place then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. So their place of rest actually was e equal to their place of worship. They were to take a day and rest and give praise and offerings and tithes and worship to the God that gave them the rest. And so they were resting in his finished work in their life. And in Joshua, he continues, before Judges, Joshua 21 and verse 43 it says at the end, because Joshua not only took them into the land as Moses was not able to go, and then Joshua actually was their captain. 
He was the captain of their salvation. Ironically, Joshua's name is the same name in the Hebrew as Jesus. He was the one that went before them and battled with them, and he was, he was the leader, and he led them, and he actually led them to defeat Jericho and, and all these other nations that were in the land inhabiting it. And it says, after all of their battles, verse 43 in chapter 21 says, so the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they dwelt in it. So I want to just take a minute and talk about this, because... Um, think about this. They crossed the Jordan. Some of them were content to get land outside of the Jordan, and the rest of them went into the land. They were there, and I don't remember how many years it was, but they fought battle after battle after battle. They took losses, and they had many wins. And as a result of that, they conquered this land that God said, He promised, He swore He would give them. Did that mean they just walk in and go, Hey, Thanks for the land, God. Or did they have to take it through battles? They had to take it through battles. And yet what God writes there in Joshua is that the Lord gave to Israel all the land. Now, how do you, how do you deal with that? God said he'd give it to us, and yet we had to fight for it. Well, the reality was they were not a warring nation. They were not a people of battle. They didn't fight like all the other nations. Just one example is Jericho. When they fought against Jericho, they had swords and they had some of the stuff that washed on the shore from the Egyptians that were killed in the Red Sea. But ultimately, God said, I want you to walk around this place for seven days. And I want you to shout when I tell you. And when they shouted, who gave them victory? God did. The walls literally fell down. They never touched them. It wasn't the noise that caused the walls to fall. It was a fortified city. So as they had been saved by faith from Egypt, they were to take the land by faith and just do what God told them to do. And so we see that God gave it to them. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord spoke to the house of Israel. If not a word failed of all that he spoke to them, how much more we, trusting in Jesus, can trust that if he said it, it will happen. If he says it, it will come to pass. And so he talks about Israel's rest in Canaan. It didn't mean that they didn't have anything to do as part of that. It actually meant that they just had to do what he gave them to do. So the first rest he talks about is the rest of salvation. And it's that rest we talked about in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I can relate to that. I don't know about you guys, but I get weary, I get heavy laden. And most of the time, I want to point out that the weariness and the heavy ladenness is not because of what God's shown me. It's because of the things that I'm trying to do in my own power and strength. I get stressed out. I feel oppressed, I get worn out, not because I'm following God, but because I'm following this thing right here, my heart. I know that many of you guys are fans of Disney movies, and I watch them too, but the thing that they tell you is to follow your heart, and then all your dreams will come true. When I follow my heart that is deceitfully wicked, according to Jeremiah 17, 
my worst nightmares come true. Do whatever makes you happy will not make you happy. And it sure as heck won't give you rest. It will give you unrest. It will give you, you'll be chasing after every feeling you have, everything that you want to do, and you will be exhausted when you're done. Trust me, I'm still struggling with that. This message is just as much for me as it is for anybody else. But then he says, this rest of salvation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. And so, secondly, he talks about rest, and I call it the rest of submission. The rest of salvation is the rest in, I don't have to save myself, I'm good. God has made up for all of my sin and my past, my present, my future. I'm delivered. And yet the rest of submission is actually the rest that I think is harder. That's submitting to God now that we are in this promised land and trusting that what he says is the most important. So the rest of submission is that rest of submitting to the word of God and its instruction. They had rest through the word of God being told to them, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And if they did it, they would find rest in the land. But if they didn't, they would find only being defeated by their enemies. So this rest he talks about is mentioned in verse 11 to 13. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of their disobedience. For the word of God, what God speaks to us through his word, is living and it's powerful. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The two-edged sword he's talking about is not like one of those big sabers where they start wailing and knocking over six people at a time. It's not King Arthur's Excalibur. It's not. It's actually a double-edged sword that was used for hand-to-hand combat. It's a small one. And in a battle, you could use it for surgery. You could, you, you could pierce. You could, you could deal with small things. It's, it's a more intricate way of cutting. And so this two-edged sword that he's talking about he says it's, it's good for piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, what we feel versus what we know spiritually. He says, and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So if you want to know where your heart really is, read God's word and, and submit your heart to it and say, Lord, where am I at in this? And he can actually show us our hearts through us reflecting on the word of God. He says that the word of God is is good to do this and there is no creature hidden from God's sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the word of God is is just the integral part of this whole thing. So, but then he talks, so that's the rest of submission. And if you're willing to submit to the instruction of the word of God, you'll find rest for your souls. But then he talks about a future rest in verse 8 through 11. It says there, If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. This is for us who hear this now. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And so he talks about this future rest for believers. And it's also mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. 
But how do we enter into this rest that God has for us? Well, in verse 7 through 19, I think we can learn from the restless of the past. Those who were restless, they never found rest. Rest was available to them. God spoke about it, but they did not obtain it because of unbelief. They placed their confidence in their ability to save themselves. So this is our warning. If you are finding yourself trying to save yourself in any form or fashion, whether it's by planning better next time, whether it's by doing better, whether it's by you know, whatever your system is, stop. Their fear that God couldn't keep them safe in Canaan is what kept them from entering into rest. What is the step of faith that God keeps putting on your heart that you're unwilling to fully walk into because you're afraid that if you walk past that point of no return, God's not able to, to keep you safe there? And then he says, uh, essentially he's saying doubt and unbelief lead to tragic results for us too. We're saved by faith, we must continue to live by faith. So how do we enter into rest? In chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, I put up there for you, let us develop godly FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. How many of you have fear of missing out on something? He says, uh, or I, I put there for you, stop fearing failure and start fearing missing out on God's best for you. God's best can only be had by faith. So many of us have a fear of missing out on whatever's going on during the weekend, whatever's going on during the week, um, whatever's going on with our family, uh, you name it. We all have fears of missing out on something. But I would submit to you that the best fear is the fear of the Lord and that's a fear that causes us to be afraid of missing out on God's best. And then, let's hear God's word, but let that hearing stir up faith within us. How many times have you read God's word and, said, and kind of explained it away to yourself? I've, I've done it. You read God's word and you go, well, I know it says that, but I, I got my own thing. I, I'm going to do it this way anyway. That we're just like the Israelites. <laughs> I know you said this, God, but I don't really have time for that right now. We miss out on rest. And then let us labor. Let us work out spiritually. How many of us are willing to get up or to stay up late or do whatever it takes to work out our physical bodies and yet we don't work out spiritually? So he says, let us be diligent to enter into rest. And I put there for you, pay close attention to the word of God. Meditate on what it says. Not what you think it means, but on what it says. Stop criticizing God's word and start let it criticizing you. The word he puts there for you, he, where it says it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, it's a criticizer. Now, not like we criticize people. It's going to criticize you in a way that causes you to see your heart and your intentional thoughts for what they really are versus what you think they are. Does that make sense? God's not so interested in what we do many times He's more interested in why we do it. So our intentions are important to God. So instead of criticizing God's word, let God's word criticize you. Let it, let it examine you. And then stop reading the word of God with the old nature. Has God really said? Have you ever read God's word and said, does it really mean that? 
I want you to think about that. In Genesis chapter 1, God had told Adam and Eve some things. And then Satan came along and said, has God really said? So we need to be careful that we don't do that unwittingly. God examines our hearts through his word. He exposes sin and unbelief and is able to remove it and heal us and free us from bondage from within. He reveals who we really are and what he can really do through repentance and faith. And so, Father, um, I don't know that there's a soul in this room right now 